Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading professors around the world discuss their most recent work. Today, I have the big honor of speaking with none other than Wade Davis, professor of anthropology at the University of British Columbia. Wade has a fantastically diverse background. Next to being a prolific academic with 22 published books, he was also a longtime explorer and residence at the National Geographic Society, taking him to what seems like every single country on this planet. He is a professional photographer and has produced 18 documentary films based on his travels. In 2018, he became an honorary citizen of Colombia. He has become famous around the world advocating for the diverse indigenous cultures of the planet. In this episode, we talk about the importance of an open-minded anthropological mindset in everyday life, how anthropology has traditionally been fighting for tolerance and compassion, and then we briefly discuss his newest book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. Hope you enjoy. So today I have the big honor of speaking with Wade Davis. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My, my pleasure, Eric. Great to be with you. Um, you sent me this really fascinating article called Why Anthropology Matters, published in Scientific American. Why would anyone think anthropology does not matter and why are they wrong? Well, not too long ago, I think it was Forbes magazine rated uh, anthropology, anthropology is the worst possible undergraduate major, uh, the most irrelevant major and and uh, um, uh, although that provoked a lot of um, immediate response from many people who saw the study of culture as being uh, excellent preparation for any vocation in any field um, uh, the response from professional anthropologists was somewhat muted because the discipline itself had sort of turned in on itself um, in the last 30 or 40 years. And, and uh, one could be forgiven for thinking that anthropologists today mostly write and think about anthropology. And, um, and the old traditional field-based ethnography that I was certainly raised with has become almost, almost considered um, de, de classe, almost uh, as archaic as the image of a white male with a pith helmet and khaki trousers, you know, living amongst some remote African tribe. And it's, it's, it's a kind of a trope that I think misses the incredible contribution of what anthropology represents, you know, and I think in a, in a, in a world of the university system where the sharpest weapon is the insult and the deepest wound is indignation, you can indulge these kinds of, um, of uh, you know intellectual conversations or self-flagellation, I might say, but we still live in a world where indigenous people are being um, um, uh, uh, disenfranchised, murdered, uh, raped, uh, abused every day, and it strikes me that uh, the in a world where millions of uh, Ugars are being put into concentration camps, where the forests of the nomadic Penan and Sarawak have been uh, torn down all around them, or in the high Arctic when the Inuit people are literally uh, seeing the landscape melt from beneath their lives. Uh, anthropology does need 
to revisit its past, um, revisit its activist past. And um, nothing wrong with pronouns and uh, grievance studies, but we better get on with something a little bit more substantial if we are to be relevant. I mean, a, a good indication of this is that I was living, Eric, in Washington, D.C., um, literally uh, uh, up, up the hill from the hotel where the American Anthropological Association met in the immediate wake of 9-11. And uh, there were 4,000 anthropologists in the nation's capital in the wake of the biggest story of culture they or the country would ever face. And the entire gathering um, warranted but one line in the Washington Post newspaper in the gossip section, the style section, that essentially said the nutcases are in town again. And you didn't know who was more who was more remiss, uh, the government for not listening at a critical moment in the country's history to the one profession that actually could thoughtfully, uh, intelligently answer the question on the lips of all Americans, why do they hate us? Or even worse, perhaps the profession itself for uh, cobbling together uh, spontaneously a number of sessions on that issue for themselves, but not having the wherewithal or apparently the inclination to share their considerable wisdom and knowledge with the nation at large. And this sort of disconnect, uh, which was a consequence of um, the academic uh, siloing of all specialties and also of the of the kind of ongoing and lingering a contempt that academics have for the very act of reaching out into the public sphere. And I, I went through university a time where activism and anthropology were almost intertwined and where the issues of bi biological and cultural diversity struck us as being so essential that it was almost um, immoral to not do what we could to uh, share what we had learned in the public square. And this is also cascaded into a kind of a revisionist um, denial of the contributions of the early anthropologists as if they were all simply agents of a power structure, or in the case of British and French anthropology, as if they were agents of colonial authorities. Now, there's no question, you know, anthropology was born uh, in the late 19th century, and it grew up in the shadow of Darwin, and just as Darwin, with his theories of, of, of evolution, um, created a grand scheme for the development of biological life on the planet. So some thinkers began to wonder if we couldn't come up with some grand scheme to explain the, the differences and the similarities between human cultures and populations. And the word culture at that time wasn't even used. And these armchair anthropologists in the early days, in Britain in particular, uh, were highly critical of their own culture, but prisoners of it. They could not escape the fundamental conviction that, of course, by definition, technology was a measure of societal advancement, and that they sat, whether they liked it or not, at the apex of the pyramid that sloped down to the so-called primitives of the world. There was this sort of you know, the, the idea of survival of the fittest was coined by Herbert Spencer, who was an anthropologist. And there was this very strong sense that if species evolve, then cultures do too. And that there was sort of an evolutionary development from the, literally the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of the Strand of London. And literally each of those three imagined 
moments of development were were associated with particular technological achievements, you know, literacy representing the achievement of civilization. And then along comes this really remarkable character, Franz Boas, who says, you know, uh, not only was that wrong, but it was morally reprehensible. And Boas had his revelation when he was working with the Inuit in the high Arctic in the late um, 1880s. And he realized his own helplessness in that harsh environment, even as he witnessed the extraordinary capacity of the Inuit people to survive in a harsh environment where everything had to be forged from the cold. And that sowed a seed in him of what we would later embrace as cultural relativism. And he was also informed by his later work on the Pacific Northwest Coast in the salmon forests of the Kwakwakwak, where he witnessed in British Columbia, what became British Columbia, high civilization achieved without benefit of the cult of the seed. And of course, agriculture had been seen as the sine qua non of the development of civilization. Yet here were these incredible societies, Haida, you know, Nuchalneth, Kwakwakwak, and Simshin, and so on, who were have this highly stratified civilization of specialists and, and 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 high ascetic expression, et cetera, without having benefit of agriculture. So this all shook him up. And then he began to see that the world in which we were born is just a model of reality. It's just a consequence of one set of adaptive choices that our society makes, uh, uh, that one society makes, however successfully, um, uh, 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 it may turn out to be. But critically, he sensed that the other peoples of the world weren't failed attempts at being us or failed attempts at being modern. Every culture was a unique answer to a fundamental question. Uh, what does it mean to be human and alive? And when when people answer that question, Boaz surmised, they do so in the 7,000 Voices of Humanity. And those answers and those questions be, um, become our kind of overall human repertoire for dealing with the challenges that will confront us as a species. You know, every culture had something to say. Each deserved to be heard, just as none had a monopoly on the route to the divine. And and that was really the birth of, of cultural anthropology as we know it. And when we think about it, we forget that Franz Boas, with his ideas, had shattered the European mind. It was a sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. And he and the cohort of contrarians that he attracted around him, Margaret Mead, her lover, Ruth Benedict, who famously said the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, the fantastic African-American folklorist, these were all contrarians who were haunted by the FBI, harassed by the authorities, denied academic tenure, uh, ridiculed in the press, but they, they held their ground. And in doing so, they gave us the world in which we live. And the article that you referred to, Eric, was prompted in part because I was always a big fan of Boaz. And then I read a letter. I mean, I sorry, I read a book by Charles... King, uh, which came out in Britain uh, under the title The Reinvention of Humanity, in which Charles, who's a wonderful uh, scholar at Georgetown, uh, but not an anthropologist, uh, finally sort of was there to remind anthropologists themselves why anthropology matters. And um, he did it in a really clever way um, by, by asking us um, to consider for a moment the world of 
my grandfather or maybe my great grandfather, maybe Eric, your great great grandfather or whatever, but the world before World War I, say Edwardian Europe uh, or the turn of the 20th century, what did people actually believe then? Well, they believed that race was a given, a biological fact, with lineages dividing white from black in particular that went back to the dawn of time. Uh, differences in customs and beliefs represented uh, innate differences in intelligence, which again fit into this evolutionary scheme from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized of London. Uh, sexual and behavioral characteristics were were fixed. Whites were smart, blacks physically strong but lazy, and some people not even people at all. In 1902, Eric, in the lifetime of my grandfather, uh, it was debated in Parliament in Melbourne, Australia, as to whether or not Aboriginal people were in fact humans. And as recently as the 1950s in Australia, ranchers had quotas as to how many abos could be shot with impunity who trespassed upon their lands. As recently as the 1960s, when I was a middle school student, there was a book used in schools across the curriculum of Australia, a treasury of fauna of Australia that included the Aboriginal people as amongst the interesting forms of wildlife in the country. In the time of my grandfather, politics was the exclusive domain of men. Women's home place was in the home. Um, immigrants were seen as a threat, no matter how recently the host group had themselves clawed its way ashore. The poor were responsible for their own misery, even though, incredibly, at the outbreak of World War I, the British Army discovered that the average height of an enlisted man was six inches less than the height of an officer simply because of, of diet. As for the blind, the deaf, the dumb, the so-called morons, the mongoloids, and the mad, they were best locked away, lobotomized, or, according to eugenics, killed to remove them from the gene pool. It's hard for you to imagine, Eric, as it is for me, that in 1911, again, this is only six years before my own father's birth, um, the superiority of the white man was accepted with such assurance that in the Oxford English Dictionary that year, there was not an entry for what we would call racism or even colonialism. So the important point here is to remember that, you know, again, you know, something as simple as fundamental as interracial marriage was still against the law in most American states as recently as 1967 when I was 14 years old. Imagine against the law for a person of color to marry a white person in much of the United States when I was 14 years old. Now, the important point is that today, not two generations on, in my case, three, maybe four for you, it goes without saying that no educated person would share any of these bankrupt certitudes. By the same token, what we take for granted today would have been unimaginable to your great grandfather, um, uh, not and 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 their values we would not only reject as transparently wrong but morally reprehensible. So this begs the obvious question: What was it that allowed our modern American culture to focus for a second on that uh, on that realm? to go from zero to 60 in a couple of generations, you know, whereby women went from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed 
to the White House, gay people from the closet to the altar. Well, these were all political movements that have been justly celebrated, but political movements have to begin somewhere, and they have to begin with a set of ideas, some fundamental challenge to the orthodoxy that makes possible the political movement, some flash of insight um, that would shatter the intellectual foundations of the lives of my great-grandparents, um, you know, um, uh, uh, who believed uh, with archaic ideas um, that are as irrelevant to our lives today as those of a 19th century clergyman who was so certain that the earth was but 6,000 years old. And the point is that the catalyst for that transformation, very, very, uh, I think, indisputably, were the ideas that came out of this small band of contrarians um, who came together in the orbit of Franz Boas, destined to change the world. And we really do live, as I write in that article, in the social landscapes of their dreams, because they never could have imagined that their beliefs would have become manifest, let alone um, inform the zeitgeist of an entire global multicultural pluralistic culture. But if you, Eric, you know, as a student at Stanford, as I'm sure you do, find it completely normal that an Asian friend might have an Irish girlfriend or that a Jewish um, boy might find solace in the Buddhist Dharma, um, or that a person born into a male body could self-identify as a woman, well, then you are a child of anthropology. And if you recognize that marriage need not be exclusively uh, a man and a woman, that two women can be great parents and have great children and a great family as long as their love is love in the home, it's because you've embraced values that are inc- would have been inconceivable to your great grandparents. And critically, if you believe that the wisdom can be found, that there is wisdom to be found in all spiritual traditions, that people in all places have always been dancing with new possibilities for life, that one preserves jam, but not culture, then you share a kind of a vision of compassion and inclusion that represents, I would maintain, the most sublime revelation of our species, the scientific realization that all of humanity is one interconnected and undivided whole. Now, the really critical thing when we think of these early scholars, Eric, is that for them, it was just an idea, an intuition, which their own experience of the wonder of the other certainly reinforced. But the incredible thing is that today modern science has proven them to be true in the sense that genetics has shown beyond doubt that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race is a fiction. We are all descendants of the same common ancestors, including those who walked out of Africa 65,000 years ago and then embarked on this extraordinary diaspora, 40,000 years in duration that carried the human spirit Uh, over 2,500 generations to every corner of the habitable world. But here is a key point. If we accept that genetic data, which is irrefutable, it means by definition that every culture shares the same genius, the same mental acuity, the same raw potential. 
And therefore, how that potential is expressed is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. There is no evolutionary hierarchy when it comes to culture. Yes, in our lineage, for all kinds of complex reasons and good and bad uh, uh, reasons, perhaps, uh, we've embraced technology as a sine qua non of, of advancement. Technological wizardry is our greatest achievement. But other peoples have done made other choices, investing, for example, into the uh, complex task of unraveling the mystic threads of memory inherent in a myth, which would be a priority of the people of the Australian outback. But the point of this matter is that it really has been shown to be true that every culture has something to say, each deserves to be heard. Every cultural vision of life itself deserves a place at the Council of Human Knowledge. Now, I would argue as far as to say that 10,000 years from now, when people look back on this era, the two things that will be remembered more than technology, more than wealth, will be two events that came about at the end of long journeys. One into space that brought us a vision on Christmas Eve, 1968, of the Earth from space, a blue planet, not an infinite horizon, a limited sphere floating in the void of space, as the astronaut said. But the other journey is this journey inside the fiber of our beings made possible by genetic analysis that has revealed finally that race is a total fiction, that we really are all brothers and sisters. And I don't mean that in the spirit of hippie ethnography, that the entire human endeavor is one collective pulse, one desire, one hope, one dream and that everybody on earth contributes to that dream. That, unlike the former illumination from space, has yet to really get into the zeitgeist of our civilization, but it's getting there. And then as it does, we will not have to lament and, and mourn and cry out as we have for so many months now that Black Lives Matter. Yes, well, it, why is it so tempting to believe that our culture is better than others? So as a psychologist, I'm really fascinated in this, and everyone seems to believe, yes, we are better than others. Other people are just, as you say, failed attempts at oh, being... Cultural, cultural, cultural myopia, Eric, cultural myopia has haunted the human species since the dawn of consciousness. You know, uh, uh, translate the name of most indigenous people, and, and, and it means the people, the implication being that the blokes over the hill are savages. I mean, the word barbarian comes from the Greek word barbarous, one who babbles, and if you don't speak Greek, you didn't exist. When Herodotus came back from his journeys four centuries before the Christian era, you know, Plutarch wanted him to be banished from Athens for the audacity of suggesting that somewhere over in that place called Persia, there might be something interesting happening. And the Aztec had the same notion. And my argument, and I think it's an argument of social anthropology, is that in an interconnected, multicultural, pluralistic world, we can no longer afford cultural myopia. And in that sense, anthropology is also the antidote to nativism. It's the antidote uh, uh, to the, the Proud Boys and Donald Trump. You know, it is it has this incredible role to to play, um, um, you know, as as um, 
uh, as activists. And, and you know, uh, even as Franz Boas at the very beginning, for example, um, uh, you know, I mean, look, he was a flawed man. He was, he could be petty, you could be jealous, he could be covetous. He wasn't, you know, he, 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 uh, he was threatened by by the success of others. I mean, none of that sh- none of that should surprise us. He, after all, was an academic. It kind of goes with the turf. But at the same time, um, you know, even as he was investigating esoteric matters like shamanism or the mythology, the Kwakwakwak or, or linguistic puzzles that fa- attracted his attention, he was a tireless um, proponent of justice, social justice, economic justice. And and and, uh, uh, and he expressed repeatedly contempt uh, for scientific racism at a time when 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 uh, the, the physical mismeasure of man was, was still a tool of anthropology, um, and, and and so you know I think it's fair to say that Boaz uh, ranks with Einstein, Darwin, and Freud as one of the four intellectual pillars of modernity. You know his core idea was really a radical departure in his time, the 1880s, and with his students into the 1920s, it was um, really the sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. As I said, it's a shattering of the European mind. It was as unique in its own way as Einstein's theory of relativity was in the discipline of, of, um, of physics. And even though, as I say, his research took him to these esoteric realms, um, he remained completely grounded in racial and economic justice and the promise and potential of, of social of social social change. Um, he was a tireless campaigner for human rights, and he maintained always that anthropology as a science only made sense if it was in the surface, in the service of a higher tolerance. Uh, one commentator writing as early as 1963 when segregation and Jim Crow was very much intact and and uh, and intermarriage uh, between races uh, criminally prosecuted, um, Thomas Gossett wrote in a book uh, that Boas had done more to combat race prejudice than any other person in history, and they did so at considerable cost to themselves. And uh, if if Boas were to be alive today. Um, his voice would resound in the public square. You know, he wouldn't sit back in silence as half the languages of the world, uh, with half the knowledge of the world embodied in those languages, uh, uh, teeters on the brink of exhaustion and extinction. You know, to those who would say that indigenous cultures are destined to fade away and there's no point to study them, quote unquote, he would say that change and technology pose no threat to culture, but power does. Um, in every case, these are not frail and delicate societies drifting away from history as if failed attempts at being modern. In every case, these are dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. And for Boaz, that would have been seen as an optimistic um, uh, uh, observation. Because, of course, if human beings, in fact, are the agents of cultural destruction, we can surely be the facilitators of cultural survival. So anthropology really does matter because it allows us to create these connections, to look beneath the surface of things, to celebrate the very existence of other possibilities of life, other visions of life itself. It's the antidote to 
nativism. It's the enemy of hate. It's like a vaccine of understanding and tolerance and compassion that silences the um, the rhetoric of demagogues. And I think the 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 voice of anthropology has never been more important. But as I argued in that opinion piece, it has to be spoken to be heard. And anthropologists spend so much of their time now re-examining the profession, uh, self-flagellating themselves in, in endless grievance studies, you know, worried about pronouns and the kinds of concerns that make sense only within the university bubble, where, as I say, you know, the deepest weapon is, or the, the most vicious weapon is insult, and the deepest wound is indignation. Well, you know, I, coming out of that activist tradition, you know, my tutor at Harvard, David Mayberry Lewis, one of the great ethnographers of the Americas, he was also an activist who founded Cultural Survival. There was, there was no separation between one and the other. Um, and and uh, I, I believe that we, we still have an obligation to be in the field, to be serving as interlocutors when a, a, appropriate, as colleagues and collaborators in all moments, as we together not examine the exoticism of the other, but ask ourselves, what kind of world do we all want to live in? And what do we need to do to generate a truly multicultural, pluralistic world in which every voice is heard and, and, and every vision of life itself finds a way to stay? That, to me, is, is what would make anthropology uh, once again, a kind of a shining light that it was in the, I think, in the early years of the, of the century. It can be very tempting to think that ethnocentrism, right, the tendency to believe our culture is better than anyone others, anyone else's culture. It's just something that other people have, that the people used to have, but it seems so deeply ingrained and people can notice this when you travel and you look at other countries and you're like, oh man, they've done so much, pro they've made so much progress, right? Look at their high rises, we still have this lens that is much less vicious, not based well, think, on think for a minute, Eric. I mean, think, Eric, for a moment of how we view the Aboriginal people of Australia, right? You know, when the British washed ashore on that distant continent, they saw people that looked strange, uh, who had a simple material technology. But what really offended the British in the 18th century and well into the 19th century, uh, and why, and why it was debated whether or not they were in fact even human, was that the Aborigines showed no interest in progress, no interest whatsoever in improving upon their material lot. And because that was the ethos of Victorian Europe, the idea of optimism, change through time, progress, ideas that were crushed in the blood and mud of Flanders of the Great War, but were very much alive during the settlement of Australia, the British, in their inimitable way, concluded that the Aboriginal people of Australia were indeed not human beings, and they began to shoot them. And the entire civilization, 10,000 clan territories, the very first humans to walk out of Africa based on studies of the Y chromosome, um, the whole place went from Eden to Armageddon within a generation or two. And what was missing from the British was an ability to understand a devotional philosophy that was so incredibly subtle, and that was the dreaming. And, this, and the dreaming wasn't a dream. It was the idea that the world both existed and was waiting to be born, and that the purpose of life was not to change anything because the world hadn't even taken shape yet, but rather to do the ritual gestures 
particularly along the song lines, which were the trajectories walked at the dawn of time by the ancestors as they sang the world into existence. And so you would honor those ancestors at the points within your clan territory traversed by the song line, the goal of which was not to change the world, but the opposite, uh, to keep the world exactly as it was at the time of its dawning. It would be as if all of European thought had gone into pruning the shrubs in the Garden of Eden to keep it just as it was when Adam and Eve had their fateful conversation. The entire ethos in Australia was not change. It was constancy, stasis, not progress, but keeping the world as it had always been. Now, had we followed that devotional trajectory intellectually, we wouldn't have put a man on the moon. But on the other hand, we wouldn't be talking about global climate change and our capacity to transform the biological life support systems of the planet. Now, if we think for a moment of all of this in the context, for example, Eric, of climate change, we think of climate change as being humanity's big problem right now. But it's important to remember it is, but it wasn't caused by humanity. It was caused by a narrow subset of humanity that for three centuries has eaten the ancient sunlight of the world. Most peoples of the world even though they're dealing with the consequences of climate change more directly than we are, certainly, um, played no role whatsoever in its, in its creation. And it's important to remember that we think of ourselves, back to what you said about cultural myopia, as being outside of history. You know, we're the real world and all these people are failed attempts at being us. Well, that's the essence of cultural myopia. But the truth is we are ourselves like anyone else any other civilization, a product of our history and our culture. And we can trace back directly in the Western tradition uh, the moment in which we tried desperately to, to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute thought, um, of absolute faith, rather, um, during the Enlightenment. And when Descartes, with a single gesture, said that all that existed was mind and material or matter, when Saul, as Saul Bellow said, science they began its house cleaning of belief, we tossed out all notions of myth, magic, mysticism, but critically metaphor. And the earth became an inert stage upon which only the human drama unfolded. And the idea that the flight of a bird could have meaning was ridiculed. And, and, and therefore, a mountain becomes a pile of rock, as you grew up to think. Uh, a forest is just cellulose and bored feet, um, you know, ancient forests existing to be cut. Well, that makes you and I, as two scions of our worldview, profoundly different than my children, for my godchildren, for example, in the mountains of Peru, raised that a, to believe that a mountain is an apu deity that will direct their destiny. Now, again, the point isn't who's right and who's wrong. Is a mountain a pile of rock? Is it a spirit being? The interesting thing is how the belief system mediates the relationship between the human population and that landmark with profoundly different consequences for the ecological footprint. If you think of forests as just cellulose and board feet, you don't hesitate to tear it down. If you think it's the abode of, of, of spirits that has to be embraced during your Hamasa initiation, as is the case of the Kwakwakwak, then you don't tear it down. You have a very different relationship to it. And it's important to realize, again, this is without judgment. It's just an observation that our way of thinking about the land with this kind of extractive paradigm is not the norm when you look through the ethnographic lens, but the exception. And it's much more common to find societies 
who base their entire dynamic uh, relationship with the natural world around them uh, through the lens of reciprocity, some basic iteration of a fundamental idea that the earth owes people its bounty, but people owe their fidelity to the earth, that, that humans aren't part of the problem, they're part of the solution, because only through the human imagination can the beauty of the earth become manifest. Now, these, these are societies like the Barasan in the Northwest Amazon, whose most profound cultural intuition is the idea that plants and animals are just people in another dimension of reality, or the elder brothers in the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, this volcanic massif that soars to 20,000 feet out of the Caribbean coastal plain of Colombia, where to this day, uh, the uh, the Wiwa the, the and the, uh, the um, Kogi and, and the Arawakos are led by Mamos, who are the direct descendants of the sun priests of the Tyrona. And they literally believe that their prayers maintain the cosmic balance of the world. And they, and they call themselves the elder brothers, and they dismiss the rest of us who have ruined the world as the younger brothers. The point is that this narrow way of thinking, which has been the, 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 the modern intuition of the West, going back to the Enlightenment, of course it brought us great things. It brought us a scientific method. Uh, out of which came, uh, it, it, it liberated the individual from the tyranny of the collective. Again, the sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. It gave us great freedom, but it also, we lost the comfort of faith. So there's always these trade-offs. But the most important thing is that even as, as it has gifted us, uh, for example, allopathic medicine or putting a man on the moon, uh, all great achievements, uh, the, the former being perhaps the greatest achievement of the human imagination. Um, nevertheless, uh, uh, it, it is not the only way. Uh, and and um, it has also brought us to a relationship with the natural world, which is, by any scientific definition, profoundly problematic. Differences, of course, don't just exist between cultures, they exist within cultures. And it seems like, especially these days, we're so fast to rush to judgment about others just based on their skin color and their status. We're always like, we know what they're up to, we know what they do, maybe even understand them better than they understand themselves. And it just, there's this element of arrogance that really comes with it. And it seems like this anthropological mindset that you've been espousing could help on this interpersonal level in everyday life well, as well. Well, you know, a lot of this comes, you know, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of this comes down to religion, you know, I mean, you know, you know, you know, my, my father used to say that every church should have a billboard outside of it that de declared important if true. In other words, you know, every religious worldview is just an attempt to figure out what happens to us when we die. And since no one's ever going to know the answer to that, people can speculate and they can create Baroque religious ideas, some of which are, 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 extraordinarily beneficial to the living because of the because of the moral uh, parameters they place on our lives and i think you can say that about the 10 commandments for example which which are embraced by most cultures around the world not because the judaic people remarkable as they are were uniquely inspired but because those are the rules that allow a social species to thrive i mean i don't know of any culture that doesn't sanction some form of adultery or or murder or thievery, right? Uh, and certainly, the Buddhist Dharma has profound lessons for the for for us as we prepare for the inexorable separation that death represents. But that said, no one knows, and and the idea 
that that people can have monopolies on that 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 uh, imaginary realm of the spirit um has been the source of so much of our of our of our bloodshed i mean it, it's fascinating to me the 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 incredible antagonism for example between islam and christianity which is so by so many definitions um uh, brother and sister religions right um with very much the same roots but what unites them in uh in horror at various points in history is that the only they're the only real evangelical religions in the world if you think about it i mean the buddhist the buddha would never um uh, uh evangelize uh the idea would be anathema to them and he, the buddha said you know you don't need to, to promote the truth at the at the point of a gun or the point of uh, the, the edge of a sword um the jewish faith never proselytizes i remember my first girlfriend in life was a wonderful jewish girl from boston and in five years of being with her, the closest that her grandmother ever got to my, mentioning my name was the phrase, Annie, you don't want to live in Canada. In other words, you know, the, the Jewish people are a community. And, and um, you know, so, so a lot of the, this, this discord is, 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 comes about from these presumptive presumptions, you know, uh, about realms of knowledge of which we will always remain unaware and ignorant. This is also something I have taken away from anthropology. It's just the value of having a certain community, even if it's maybe it is arbitrary and you were just born into a certain community, but it is your community. And to have the sense of, of belonging that is really deep and steeped in tradition and culture and beliefs and all these different things, even if again, well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the trade-offs that, 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 that is sort of the American dilemma. You know, we, we particularly after world war two, um, we really celebrated the individual, um, uh, which brought us all great individual freedom. And those of us who have been nursed in this kind of uh, 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 social realm would, ha and I'd be the first to resist any attempt to circumscribe my life. I'm a complete American product, if you will. But we have to remember that, you know, in in living in a world where where we we use phrases like you know Sally and John are going to get married and start a family, the implication being they didn't have two families before, you know, or a world a world in which we assume that Aunt Mabel is in uh, Sarasota, Florida, and and her brother's up in Seattle, but the, the, you know the, the the grandmother's over in Boston. We you know we 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 take that for granted. I mean, one of the things I was trying to point out in the uh the rolling stone piece that you mentioned earlier um looking at looking at this disintegration in the sense of the american dream the unraveling of the american sense of exceptionalism you know a lot of this came about for better or for worse as we kind of celebrated the the, the cult of the individual at the expense of fam of community and it's a tough one because the community can be suffocating you know that you know the tyranny of absolute faith can be matched by the tyranny of of uh, social and cultural expectations, uh, but within the community, as you suggest, is also a kind of a cloak of comfort, you know. Um, and uh, 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 there, there's there's something there's something sort of both imprisoning, but also uh, wonderfully comforting about knowing your destiny simply because of. The station you have or your family has in life. I'm not, you know, I, I you know, one of the one of the, the things about 
anthropology that I admire is that it's not it's not like anthropology is 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 without judgment. It's not it's not like we cultural relativism you know would suggest that we have to defend every trait of human beings simply because it exists, you know, as if you would defend the heinous acts of the Nazis, you know, because they had a religion, a worldview, a language. Well, no, anthropology never calls for the elimination of judgment. It calls merely for the suspension of judgment so that the very moral and ethical judgments that we're obliged to make as human beings can be informed ones. And so the anthropological lens becomes most useful when it's shone on a phenomena of which we have little understanding, but about a, but about which we cast harsh judgments, and in, in my experience, uh, um, the, uh, the exemplar of that would be the way we view the voodoo religion. Right? You know, think about this, Eric. You know, why is it that we think of voodoo as black magic? You know, um, were I to ask you to name the great religions of the world, what would you say? You know, I mean, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever. What continents left out? Sub-Saharan Africa. The assumption being that somehow African men and women south of the Sahara didn't have religious ideas. Well, of course they did. Voodoo is not a black magic cult. The word voodoo is a phone word from Dahme that just means spirit or God. And if you look into the precepts of the faith, it's the most quintessentially democratic belief system because the individual has direct access to the divine, which is why Africans always say, you know, you white people go to church and speak about God, we dance in the temple and become God. But, you know, why do we view voodoo as evil? Well, again, you know, uh, uh, 300 years of the hyena slave trade on an industrial scale, there'd always been slavery, but the, the sugar economy in particular took it to an industrial scale. And, and, and slavery wasn't um, um, born of racism as much as racism was born of slavery. You you couldn't have such an evil institution unless you dehumanize the victims of that uh, of that trade, um, and uh, uh, and then you know um, at the same time you know a, a country like Haiti, which became so deeply associated with voodoo, uh, is the only independent black country for a hundred years. You know they defeat the, the, the forces of Napoleon, the British, the Spanish. Um, you know, they, they, they fund Simon Boulevard on the condition that he free the slaves in Grand Colombia. They buy shipments of slaves destined for the American South and grant, grant them freedom, a thorn in the side of an imperial age for the entire 19th century. Then in the 20th century, the U.S. Marine Corps occupies Haiti and stays for 20 years at the height of Jim Crow. Most of the Marines are from the American South, and every Marine seems to get a book contract. The books have names like Cannibal Cousins, Black Baghdad, Voodoo Fire in Haiti, A Puritan in Voodoo Land, The Magic Island, dozens of these books that give rise to the RKO movies, Zombies on Broadway, Night of Living Dead. And these books are filled with children bred for the cauldron, zombies crawling out of the grave to attack people, and pins and knees and voodoo dolls that don't exist. But they suggested to the American people where any country where such abominations occurred could only find its redemption through military occupation. And that's why we think of voodoo as black magic cult. And anthropology can pull back the the the, the veil on that to reveal its the, the, the essential deceit of the idea. Well, sadly, we're running up against time. Uh, so first of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, but also give you an opportunity to 
add any last remarks in what we want to add? Well, I think I think that you know um, uh, I encourage all students, you know, to to think think in terms of storytelling, you know, the, and the power of stories to change the world. Um, you know, a couple of books that I've written about Colombia have, in a kind of remarkable way, given me an opportunity to actually. Uh, play a role in the unfolding peace process of a nation long misunderstood, long tormented by war, a war that would not have lasted a week without the huge tsunami of cash that comes in from the illegal trade in the last year of uh, the conflict before the uh, agreement in Havana was uh, uh, was signed in Cartagena. The FARC, the last of the guerrilla groups, was down to 6,000 cadre, but they made uh, $600 million in extortion and cocaine trafficking. Well, if you give me the Boy Scouts of Palo Alto and $600 million, I can wreak havoc in Southern Northern California. Um, you know, Colombia is not a land of violence and, and, and drugs. It's, it's a place of colores y cariño, where the people have endured precisely because of their character, which is informed by a deep spirit of place and a love of a land that is the most beautiful and biologically bountiful place on the planet. And uh, a recent book of mine, Magdalena, River of Dreams, takes the Magdalena River, which is the Mississippi of Columbia, and uses it as a metaphor to unfold a story of Columbia, which in the end becomes a love letter to the nation. Thank you so much for your time. You bet, Eric.